This is Unfilter, episode 304 for April 21st, 2020. President Trump is at odds with some state governors over how and when to get the country safely back up and running again. Over 40,000 Americans have died nationwide from the coronavirus since the pandemic began. That number is nearly double what it was a week ago. There are now more than 759,000 cases. Yet despite the growing numbers, patience is wearing thin in some parts of the country. Thousands of Americans are taking to the nation's streets in protest of stay-at-home orders. And now questions are being raised over exactly who is behind some of these demonstrations. friends, welcome in episode 304 of your Corona Counseling Cast. My name is Chris, and this week it feels like the term uncertain times is more cliche than ever. But yet here we are, protests in the streets, different versions of lockdowns remaining days to possibly even months. I even heard a report that some suggest another couple of years. So I don't know what else to call it. It feels super cliche. But they truly are uncertain times. I need a better word for it. Even for myself personally, like in my little corner of the world, I'm trying to make some pretty significant long-term business decisions right now. I have no idea how to make those decisions. I'm totally uncertain as to what the future holds. I can't wait to tell you about what I'm working on. But at the same time, I don't know if I should be doing it or not. It's uh, the, the definition of an uncertain time, isn't it? And it's interesting here we are only... What feels like a handful of episodes into covering the coronavirus, and now we're getting to the protests. Truly uncertain times. That's why when things like this get uncertain, I turn to wisdom, to philosophers. And it reminds me of the wisdom that was once bestowed upon us by the great philosopher Cardi B. And that is, despite whatever's going on, coronavirus is real. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, she made a song. You're welcome. Here you go. Said if you if you were a doubter before, how could you be now? Um, But let's start with the news. There's new models in, and they say not quite at the peaks yet in a few places. No, in fact. The peaks may be a few weeks. Weeks for peaks. Welcome back to Fox News Alert. Only nine states in the U.S. will peak uh, in COVID-19 deaths by the end of April. That, according to a new model from the University of Texas. So what does this shocking data mean as the country tries to reopen? Here with his expert insight, Fox News medical contributor, Dr. Marty McCary. Dr. McCary, we're already talking about reopening the country, uh, but this new model shows that a majority of states are going to really reach their peak over the summer. So what do you think about that timeline? This doctor is um, Skyping in from John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University. And he's got their world-famous map on a screen behind him now. So you know he's official. 
Well, it's very interesting, Carly. You know, this model from the University of Texas at Austin looked at cell phone data to actually figure out whether or not people were practicing true social distancing. That's also an interesting element of this entire thing is how the cell phone data is being used. Don't worry, it's aggregated and anonymized. Toads. And using that information, they tried to calculate when the peak is going to be coming around. Now, it's interesting, even though the country engaged in different official government policies at different times, the peak has been relatively harmonious. That is, we've not seen the staggering of peaks over the course of two months, as the models have predicted. We've seen things, at least the increase in hospitalizations, the increase in ICU stays, and the increase in deaths. Uh, arrest relatively around the same time nationally. I would love to hear further analysis of this down the road when we have more data to review, because clearly the death projections, the ones that were predicting millions or 200,000, 240,000, 100,000, even the ones that were accounting for mitigation factors like sheltering in place. (laughs) That's such a funny term. I know that's not what we call it now. We we like to be we like to be serious. We like to use uh, terms that we hear the adults using. So we like to use terms like quarantine and lockdown, <laughs> as if there's military patrols enforcing it. But it's sheltering in place is what it is. And I think it's fascinating that it seems like that the at least according to this doctor, when the sheltering in place happened, has not had a big impact on when the plateau of the curve happens. And we have that same kind of disparity with some of the modeling data for the total amounts of deaths. As we record right now, U.S. deaths are about to tick over to 41,000 deaths. It's a significant number, absolutely significant. But I'd still like to know why it wasn't quite what we modeled, even once the models were updated with mitigation techniques and all of that. Uh, and then same here, I, I, what, what, what did we get wrong and how do we adjust future models so they, they accommodate that? So that way, future models are very reliable. Because ideally, we would take some sort of, I don't know, scientific approach and revise what we got wrong and not just say, well, math. You know, we actually have to be honest when these things fail and consider what we could do differently next time. Otherwise, it's always going to be faulty information. And they tried to calculate when the peak is going to be coming around. Now, it's interesting, even though the country engaged in different official government policies at different times, the peak has been relatively harmonious. That is, we've not seen the staggering of peaks over the course of two months, as the models have predicted. We've seen things, at least the increase in hospitalizations, the increase in ICU stays, and and the increase in deaths. Uh, arrest relatively around the same time nationally. And so it's interesting to see whether or not this model that predicts early peaking in seven different states uh, turns out to be true or not. Yeah. And if that's not troubling enough, uh, we also have this uh, concern about immunity in people that have already had it. Let's listen to Dr. Deborah Burks. We know that when you get sick and you recover and you develop antibody, that that antibody is often confers immunity. We just don't know if it's it's immunity for a month, immunity for six months, immunity for six years. So, doctor, I mean, if, if, if you're immune, if you get it and you're only immune for a couple months, what does that mean? 
Well, it could mean there's susceptibility in the fall when we all expect a second wave. Now, I say that not to create panic, but when we do see cases in September, we don't want to create hysteria. This may be expected. It may be that we get this manageable to a point where it's more like the seasonal flu. That's what I'm hoping. We'll see it, but it's manageable. That's Dr. Marty McCary, I think, M-A-K-A-R-Y, at uh, John Hopkins Hospital, John's the Ness Hopkins Hospital. And he's in the research area over there. The other, the other kind of data points we can watch are what happens in other countries, countries that are maybe a little bit further ahead in their trends, so they're starting to reopen. We are seeing some second waves in those places. Overseas, where several European countries are taking the first steps towards getting back to business, but at the same time, some are seeing an alarming spike in cases. ABC's Julia McFarlane on lessons we might learn from there. That's what I that's my my outlook on this is, OK, let's observe and figure out what we need to tweak when we do it here, just like what we need to tweak about the models to make them accurate. Europe's outbreak tonight behaving like a forest fire, reflaring in places where the spread was considered under control. Germany just went through a fourth day of a spike, adding more than 3000 new cases. That's as the country gets set to open some schools the first week of May. Milan, Italy also faces an infection rate 30 percent higher than the rest of Italy's rate nationwide, even as the nation's daily death rate fell below 500. Preparing for more mobility, Italy is developing a phone app to track people positive for the virus. Denmark is among nations taking gradual steps, allowing the reopening of hair salons, tattoo parlors and driving schools. Got to get those hair salons open. Everybody always wants the hair salons. Which, actually, I could really, really use a haircut. It's so bad, I'm thinking about letting the wife just take the razor to it and just just say, hey, you know what, it was my corona haircut. And, you know, maybe people let me off the hook. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> you think that would work? I feel like I could pull that off. <laughs> so there's this increasing chatter around the lab in Wuhan. And chatter around investigations and funding for it, which Trump was asked in a daily press briefing. Thank you, Mr. President. U.S. intelligence is saying this week that the coronavirus likely came from a level four lab in Wuhan. There's also another report that the NIH under the Obama administration in 2015 gave that lab $3.7 million in a grant. Why would the U.S. give a grant like that to China? Uh, the Obama administration gave them a grant of $3.7 million. I've been hearing about that. Uh, and we've instructed that if any grants are going to that uh, area, we're looking at it literally about an hour ago and also early in the morning. Uh, we will end that grant very quickly. But it was granted quite a while ago. They were granted a substantial amount of money. Uh, we're going to look at it and take a look, but I understand it was a number of years ago, right? So when, you are. When did you hear? When did you hear? Was the grant was made? 2015. 2015. Who was president then? I wonder. Okay. Uh, when, when, yes, ma'am. Yeah, we get it. We get it. Oh yeah, who's? Pre- yeah, we get it. Now we get it. It's it's cool. We get it. All right. So are they doing an investigation of that lab? Well, it it seems it is happening. As this virus continues to ravage the world, there are also questions about how this all started. Some say that it was a wet market inside Wuhan, that that may be to blame, and that these types of places pose a risk to us all. But is that true? Our Maggie Ruley files this report. 
China is now reporting many more cases of SARS. The outbreak spreads. More people infected this morning with that dangerous new strain of bird flu. A new front opening in the fight against Ebola. Word of a deadly illness arriving in America for the first time. It is called MERS. The new coronavirus may be the first pandemic in recent memory to shut down the world. But it's not the first of its kind. And scientists say it won't be the last. We'll never be able to um, be risk-free. There will always be potential spillover as we co-evolve on this planet. That's the way it's going to be. About three quarters of all infectious diseases originate in animals, some exotic, others from livestock like chickens. Even the seemingly cute and cuddly, all could be vectors for highly infectious, potentially deadly, novel virus outbreaks in humans through contact or consumption. And many scientists fear wildlife wet markets, where thousands of people and animals gather together, are a breeding ground for outbreaks. Doesn't China sort of owe the world a big check? I mean, all of the lives that have come from this. I'm I'm perplexed still uh, why this is a topic of conversation, that this could be considered racist. Um, it, It seems obvious that they have a bit of responsibility in this. And I know we all want to we want we want to shift blames to our favorite politician, but you saw or heard in that introduction there. This is not the first global pandemic. Well, maybe it is. This is not the first major outbreak that's come from China. This is not a racist statement. If it's happening from Canada, I'd be making the same statement. It seems like there needs to be better participation from China in transparency and much better data. Like even right now, people don't really trust the data coming out of there. It, it's, it just seems like in an interconnected society that we have where travel is so abundant, there has to be some responsibility for this. Here's a CNN piece on the investigation. Well, the U.S. says it's looking into what many have called a conspiracy theory. And there is a new report claiming that China sat on critical information for a number of days and that Beijing has been withholding crucial information. CNN's David Colville reports now from Shanghai. At the start of the outbreak, this is where China directed the world's attention, suggesting that this Wuhan seafood market was the source of the novel coronavirus outbreak. CNN even traveled there just before the city locked down in January. Officials had shut down the wet market and security told us to leave. U.S. intelligence officials tell CNN they are investigating another possible source, suggesting the virus may not have originated naturally as China has advertised, but rather that it possibly started in a Wuhan lab. Sources say it is one of many origin theories the U.S. is looking into. Chinese officials pushing back against that claim on Thursday, the foreign ministry spokesperson dismissing that the virus started in a lab, instead stressing that, quote, this is a scientific issue that should be studied by scientists and medical experts. I love how they worked in science and scientists in their in one sentence. It's one sentence and they got scientific and scientists in there. Real, you know, some real nice science shaming in there, which is always a great go to. Yet, it is the same spokesperson who last month floated a controversial theory, tweeting that it might be the U.S. Army who brought the epidemic to Wuhan. I like that it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just a controversial theory. But the current, as they put it, conspiracy theory. Fuck the EU. Whoa, whoa. Just because we have audio of you doesn't mean we can actually use it. (laughs) Did you hear that? (laughs) I just can't. I just can't. The current most popular lab conspiracy theory is is that they have it down to a worker 
who was there. She got infected based on experiments that she was doing. She passed it to her boyfriend. Her boyfriend brought it to the market. Once Little Piggy went to the market, everybody got corona. That's the current quote-unquote conspiracy theory. Now, in episodes past, I don't have, I think it might have been two or three ago, I don't remember, um, there was a really good write-up that showed the types of research that were being done at that lab, the recent job postings they'd had. It seems worth asking when you read that, when you read that they were hiring specifically for corona-type transmissions from bats and that's what they were working on. It seems like it's worth considering it's possible that that's where it came from. And why does that matter? I think it matters in terms of reparations and responsibility. Like, we have to take responsibility for this. I also think at the same time, there's a broader conversation to be had about now that we as a nation are so vividly aware of this possibility, what's our responsibility now? What, what about healthcare? What's, what's the responsibility of healthcare in all of this? Is a robust healthcare system a national security matter? Has, has our security status been lessened by this? Possibly. So how, how do we as a nation adjust now? Do we recalculate that cost to revenue ratio where we took out a bunch of beds and we didn't overstock with respirators because insurance companies wanted to cut costs? Do we reconsider that calculus now? What's our responsibility? I mean, that's a question we have to ask, too. I'm asking what China's responsibility is, but I'm asking what's our responsibility, too? Because it's probably going to happen again. There's more flights. They're going to get faster and cheaper. It's going to happen. Pretty soon we'll have Elon rockets. And uh, we'll be spreading it even faster in our Elon rockets. So what are we going to do about it? What's our responsibility? What's our responsibility as individuals? I think they're all fair questions. I don't know if now is the time to ask them, though. That's probably that's probably the thing. You can tell I'm going a little slow today, maybe. Um, hurts to breathe. <laughs> I don't think I have the corona, but uh, I do have a dry cough. And my lungs hurt. And uh, when I talk a lot, it starts to ache a little bit. I think it's just a cold. Um, I don't have any other symptoms. Been checking for a temperature and stuff like that. I am isolated. But uh, I think it's probably just that. But I don't know what that means for the rest of the week's production schedule. Because <laughs> I definitely don't want to get too sick. Um, I'm a little winded at the moment. And go figure. Talking hurts, right? Isn't, that, isn't it always how it works? Like if, if your profession requires you use your hands constantly, it's your hands that get hurt. In my case, it requires that I run my mouth all the time. Of course, now my lungs hurt. So just be careful out there. You never know who could have it. So let's start with the protests. That seems like an appropriate place now. To the protests. Woo! USA, yes. Protests, protests, protests have begun against the stay-at-home orders. And now to those demonstrations around the country against stay-at-home orders. The protesters rallying in state capitals, calling the orders too extreme and a violation of their rights. Steve Osasami has more. Good morning, Steve. 
Good morning to you, Michael. Many of these people take offense to the notion that they're not sensitive to the health crisis that's happening in this country right now. Some of them are having to sign up for unemployment for the first time in their lives. They want their government officials to take the risk and the shutdown orders and get this country back to work immediately. In Michigan, they're calling it Operation Gridlock. Thousands poured into Lansing, the state capital, to protest the governor's stay-at-home order. If you're sick, stay home and in your house. The ones that can work need to work. We need to open our businesses. Michigan is in dire straits now. We need to get to work. Michigan's governor was not pleased that protesters outside her office weren't socially distancing. COVID-19 has killed more than 1,900 in the state. The sad irony here is that the protest was that they don't like being in this stay home order and they may have just created a need to lengthen it. The protest isn't ending there. A group of residents and small business owners have filed this lawsuit against the governor saying that her stay at home order meant to fight the spread of the coronavirus is unconstitutional. Now, this will be interesting. I wonder if that is true. I, I, I was kind of trying to look into this earlier uh, last episode and I couldn't get a good answer to that. Arguing that Governor Whitmer has placed the cost of these orders squarely upon the shoulders of private individuals and their families and has failed to justly compensate affected parties. Across the country, as the lines to the food and unemployment offices grow longer, patience is wearing thin for the restrictions meant to save lives. They were marching in North Carolina, too. One woman was taken away by police. They were shouting that they're more afraid of the spiraling economy than they are of any virus. Everybody gets to make their own choice. If you're scared, stay home. But I'm not scared, and I don't want to stay home. In Kentucky, where the disease has killed at least 115 people, churchgoers are suing, saying that the governor has gone too far keeping the faithful from church services. If Whoa, that's also going to be an interesting argument to see play out. So these protests have just flared up. How does something like that happen? How do these protesters just all of a sudden spontaneously organize? In the past, we've been led to believe, oh, it's social media. Oh, it's social. They're using social media. It's not social media. I mean, they might use social media, but that's not what's causing these spontaneous protests. And when you hear Trump ask, get asked about it in a press briefing, you can tell there's something here to this. Take a listen to this. I just think the American people have been incredible. Urge those protesters to listen to local authorities. I think they're listening. I think they listen to me. Oh. So the question was, do you urge those protesters to listen to local authorities? I think they're listening. I think they're listening to me. Why would he think that? wonder why. Been incredible. Urge those protesters to listen to local authorities. I think they're listening. I think they listen to me. Uh, they seem to be protesters that like me and respect this opinion. And my opinion is the same as just about all of the governors. They all want to open. <laughs> he kind of rambled it there. There's a reason, though. There's more to it, of course. Stephen Moore, someone you appointed uh, to your Open the Country Task Force, is organizing a protest in Wisconsin. But aren't they, in a sense, protesting your very own guidelines? So there you heard it there. Stephen Morris, who's been appointed by Trump to the task force for reopening the country, is the head of the pack of these protesters. He's the guy organizing this. in Wisconsin. But are they in a I'll back it up all the way. Stephen Moore, someone you appointed uh, to your Open the Country Task Force, is organizing a protest in Wisconsin. But are they, in a sense, protesting your very own guidelines? 
Well, we have a flexibility. I didn't see what Stephen said. He said we need to be the Rosa Parks of government injustices. Well, there is a lot of injustice. When you look at uh, Virginia, where they want to take your guns away. <laughs> I love that, right? Yeah, that's the president right there. They want to take your guns away. Yeah, he's he's all down for this. It's it's kind of a little twisted, though, in a weird way that the leader of the federal government is. Well, maybe this actually that I talk about it isn't that weird, because I think this has probably been going on by presidents for a while. But isn't it a strange thought to think that the president or the president's office is behind organizing these protests? I don't think it's unique to Trump. But isn't that a weird thought? Nashville today, among the latest U.S. state capitals to face the anger of a growing number of Americans demanding the U.S. be reopened, bolstered perhaps by the continuing trickle of positive news on some fronts. All indications at this point are we that we are on a descent. But while New York's governor noted the rate of COVID hospitalizations in his state is dropping, he also emphasized the coronavirus, or as he put it, the beast, is still out there. We can control the beast. Yes, but the beast is still alive. We did not kill the beast. And the beast can rise up again. We know that. He said it all depends on how people behave now. And yet, they demonstrated all weekend. This is Denver today. And this is Wisconsin yesterday, where even in the face of those who argue it's unsafe to rush into a reopening, demonstrators countered their own liberty is at stake. We are still a free country, at least for now. Highlighting the growing desperation, lineups of cars yet again for food handouts this weekend in Texas food many can no longer afford to actually buy. We have uh, five kids and then like three grandbabies at home. So right now, you know, it's a big help to us. So this is a weird a weird thing about this clip is it, it kind of is making the point of the protesters. I think I'm I think I've decided I'm sick and tired of people shaming others for talking about the economy um, and talking about lives and all of that, because I think the two are very, very much one and the same. And it's the same typical problem we have in the States where we can't keep two damn ideas in our head at the same time because we're so beat over with constant streams of information from the media, from social media, from our social groups. We ourselves, what we what we see, what we search out and collect, we're constantly inundated with information. And so there's really not a lot of time to process this very thought. The economy is linked to lives and livelihoods. Uh, I have a couple of family members now that are sitting in a position where their 30, maybe more years of work have been completely wiped out. Everything they've done for 30 years is gone. And it's going to wreck them. They will never be the same. Um, And I mean, psychologically, it's going to wreck them. It already has begun. The process, you can already see it starting. So there is very much a link between the economy and people's lives and livelihood um, and the ability to provide for each other. So I think it's a much more complex argument than it's getting reduced down to right now. So keep an eye out for anybody that's taking something this complex 
and reducing it down to a single variable. That's how you'll know they're experiencing a type of a cognitive disconnect, a type of narrative that they have constructed that they're holding on to and they're not considering the entire spectrum of a complex issue. If people collapse it down to a single thing, they're not being intellectually honest with themselves or with you and just avoid having that conversation. Because the reality is the economy does impact lives in a way that I'm watching unfold in front of me right now in a very dramatic way. It's really something to watch. Uh, and it makes me think about how hard they worked. Some of these individuals, it's all they did six days a week, maybe. 10, 13 hour days. <laughs> I mean, they just, since they were young and now they're they're getting up there in their age, you know, they're at retirement age and they were sitting on top of such a beautiful nest egg. And now it's just gone. All of it. And they can't get the loans to help support the business. I mean, the whole thing is a real mess. So I, there is some, there's something to this argument. There's something to it. More than just what we're getting, more than just, oh, you got the Trump hats and then you got uh, the left intellectuals uh, who are following almighty science. It's more than that. And until people start coming more to the middle on this and seeing both sides, it's going to be this partisan bickering back and forth where we're just shaming and shouting at each other. Kind of like Trump is doing with the governors. The president says he's in charge of deciding when and how to reopen the country, calling it the biggest decision of his life. But some governors, including J.B. Pritzker of Illinois, say the president can provide guidance, but they will decide. Uh, but it is true that it's up to the governors to make decisions about the executive orders that we've put in place. California, Oregon, and Washington state are working together on plans for reopening once it's safe to do so. And governors from six states in the Northeast, including New York's Andrew Cuomo, held a call today to coordinate their plans. It's not going to be we flick a switch and everybody comes out of their house. That's not condescending. Um, let's talk about the actual federal guidance to reopen the economy. I haven't seen this covered much on what the actual steps are, so I have that here. President Trump declaring he wants to open up America again, announcing measures to roll back social distancing and restarting the country's economy in three different phases. The roadmap will allow states to gradually restore normal activities and a way of life, depending on testing and a drop in COVID-19 cases. Our approach outlines three phases in restoring our economic life. We are not opening all at once, but one careful step at a time. And some states will be able to open up sooner than others. Some states are not in the kind of trouble that others are in. The new guidelines are aimed at easing restrictions in areas with low transmission of the coronavirus while holding the line in harder hit locations. Places with declining infections and strong testing will begin an incremental three-phase reopening of businesses and schools. In phase one, the plan recommends strict social distancing for all people in public, gatherings larger than 10 people are to be avoided, and non-essential travel is discouraged. In phase two, people are encouraged to maximize social distancing where possible and limit gatherings to no more than 50 people unless precautionary measures are taken. Travel could resume, bars may operate, and large venues such as movie theaters, places of worship, and sporting events can open. 
Phase three envisions a return to normalcy for most Americans with a focus on identification and isolation of any new infections. The new guidelines for opening up America again are a product of the best science uh, and the best common sense. Governors in California, Oregon, and Washington saying they will work together in deciding what pace to reopen the West Coast. While New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Rhode Island are banding together for a multi-state plan, collaborating a time frame on which phases they'll introduce. The return to normalcy may take time, but gives the country a glimmer of hope when it comes to their jobs and their way of life. Something needs to happen. Uh, And of course, you don't want to see a big wave of infections pick up. So you have to watch it carefully. But something needs to happen because the unemployment rate is, well, it's historic. It's staggering. It's it's uncomprehendable. Another five million people have filed for jobless claims as the coronavirus continues to grip the U.S. economy. That means an estimated 22 million people have submitted jobless claims in the last four weeks. That's accounting for roughly 13 percent of the U.S. workforce. Frances Stacy joins us now with more. She is the director of Portfolio Strategy. We'll stop there. It's huge. That's what she's going to say. It's historic. It's unprecedented. Spoiler alert. That's what she was going to say. <laughs> I know. You're shocked, right? The Paycheck Protection Program uh, that the president signed into law has been an incredible success. Uh, and and literally has made it possible for small businesses around America to keep people on the payroll. Now let's talk about this. The PPP, the the Paycheck Protection Program, which apparently was spent within hours. And it went to big names, big sandwich shops, big coffee shops, restaurants, service industry places, but the big ones. And then within a few hours, small business owners came looking for paycheck protection, paycheck protection, and there was no money left almost immediately. We know the White House, of course, views everything it does as a success, but it's impossible to square those comments from the vice president with new reporting from NBC News that shows that it wasn't days before the paycheck protection program ran out of money, but minutes. Lord Bank CEO said it was like a stampede through the eye of a needle. Joining me now is NBC's senior business correspondent and MSNBC host, Stephanie Rule. Stephanie, let's start on on sort of what we've learned and about the kind of logistical administration of this. What businesses experienced trying to get that money, who who was able to succeed and who was not? So... That assessment, it was like a stampede crashing through the eye of a needle, kind of says it all. So while there is tons of discussion about wrongdoing and prioritization and the fact that, oh, this is going to be solved with another $250 billion, that's getting a big eh. Once that $250 billion goes through, I promise, in the blink of an eye, it will be gone again. There's going to be well over a trillion dollars. There is in demand for this thing. The big... Yeah. And they're going to spend it real fast. And it may be it may be significantly more, like she was saying, than $250 billion. At the White House last night, the president stepped up his attacks on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, claiming she's blocking new funding for the Paycheck Protection Program for small business. Nancy Pelosi is blocking it. She sits in her house in San Francisco overlooking the ocean and she doesn't want to come back. She doesn't want to come back. 
<laughs> he's taking shots at Nancy because she's trying to use this as leverage to negotiate, which, of course, she's just, oh, no, 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 it's, it's real close. We're real close. It's going to be happy. So you may actually see it in the next couple of days. I don't know if that's because he was hitting at her or not, but uh, it could have something to do with it. The, the big, big thing going on yesterday and today is the dramatic shifts in oil prices. Th- this Nobody's seen anything like this. And there has been a big oversupply panic sale. Let's break down what's going on with oil. Jim, I want to get to stocks. And by the way, small business with you in just a second. It's good to chat with you again, buddy. But I want to first ask you about oil. Now, listen, the May contract expires tomorrow. It's at $14 and change. It's going to get all the attention today. We should probably look at the June contract. I understand that. But what in the world is a 22% drop in the price of crude oil right now telling you? So let's talk about these contracts. This will help you understand what's going on with the price of oil and why yesterday it was totally bananas. There are contracts to buy futures of oil at certain prices for certain amounts down the road. Traders pay varying prices depending on the grade of crude, where it comes from, and the date on which it's meant to be delivered. So normally these differences are small, and they pretty much go unnoticed outside of the energy market. But on Monday, they were just ridiculously sharp swings in the price. And that got everybody talking because for the first time ever, it went significantly negative. Uh, when I was watching the price, I, I believe, I, I mean, it's so unbelievable. I'm not actually sure on what I saw. But at one point, I swear to God, I saw that the price of oil was negative $37 a barrel. Can you believe that? Negative $37 a barrel. This is from the New York Times, uh, which I'll have linked in the show notes. It says, a benchmark for oil that was uh, a, the benchmark for oil that will be delivered next month went negative, meaning it was essentially deemed worthless, suggesting that people had to sell oil were willing to pay for it to be taken off their hands. Oil that is scheduled to be delivered in June, more reflective of the market's view on what the value of crude right now is, also fell, sliding 16% to $21 a barrel. But you see, that's key there. Right now, the June price of oil is $21. The problem is, is that the United States is running out of places to store oil. Oil is already being stockpiled on barges that are just sitting out at sea. And in any nook and cranny that companies can find in their storage facilities, they're loading it up with oil. And now traders are worrying that even that space is running out. So there truly is no more demand. And Russia and Saudi Arabia are still pumping too much. And the agreements to reduce what they're pumping don't even technically begin to kick in until May next month. But even then, it's probably not enough. The reduction isn't probably enough what they agreed to now. But they, don't, they haven't even kicked in yet. There's also, this is continuing from the New York Times, broader worries also growing that the deal reached on April 12th between the organizations of the petroleum exporting countries in Russia will not be sufficient to prevent the oil markets being overwhelmed with the record surge of surplus oil. The numbers explain why investors are worried. Under the terms of the agreement brokered by President Trump, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and other countries will cut 9.7 million barrels a day in production beginning in May. (laughs) Analysts forecast that oil consumption in April will fall by about three times that. So there will still be way too much in the market. So, okay, that's the context I wanted you to have when we hear the rest of this clip so you can kind of understand what these market guys are talking about. But what in the world is a 22% drop in the price of crude oil right now telling you? 
Well, the, the oversupply has turned into a panic. I mean, the belief is that you're just going to have oil on your hands and nobody wants to buy. And that seems completely understandable to me. I mean, when you shut down 75% of a, a working economy, particularly, you know, in our country where we consume the most oil, it, again, it's a panic. And panics like this feed off each other. I'm not sure $14 a barrel is the right price for it to be right now. But once, once the ball starts rolling down the hill, it's very difficult to stop. I think we're, we're getting relatively close. There's a lot of shorts in the market, too. Um, a lot of things can go wrong in the next week regarding the, the opening up of the economy. But if things start to go smoothly, I think that things could turn around quickly and then you can squeeze some shorts out as well. If things start to go smoothly, then yeah, squeeze out a few shorts on these market guys. <laughs> Just incredible. For the first time, benchmark U.S. oil prices have crashed into negative territory, meaning producers are now paying buyers to take it away. In a massive one-day drop, West Texas Intermediate fell from about $17.50 a barrel to below zero. It was trading at around $60 a barrel at the start of the year. Global demand has plummeted because of the coronavirus-related lockdowns and travel restrictions and fears over a lack of storage space. This is despite continuous attempts to counter the havoc in global energy markets. Well, earlier this month, Russia and Saudi Arabia agreed to an unprecedented cut in output of almost 10 million barrels a day to try to boost virus-hit markets. Now, that's Al Jazeera, so of course they're going to frame this sort of positively, but they have this ability to say it's a, it's a historic amount we're going to cut, nearly 10, 10 million barrels. But in reality, as I just quoted you from the New York Times, it's not going to be nearly enough. And like I've started realizing over the last few weeks, and now as a anchor on CNBC is realizing, they're doing this to us on purpose. Saudi Arabia and Russia got together and said, you know what? We have an opportunity here to own the market for a very long time. And now investors are calling for consolidation of the oil market, for larger oil companies to come in and consolidate. The prices will drive these businesses down to the point of collapse. Saudi Arabia and Russia can pick up a few businesses for cheap and then own the market and begin to raise the oil prices. And probably, probably for the next 20, 20 years, maybe, it'll, it'll, sure, the U.S. market can recover, but they're going to be so leveraged. <laughs> it's just going to be it's going to be Russia and Saudi Arabia's game. They've they've got us right where they want us. You know, again, I'm pretty steadfast in this. I think we're getting played and I think we've been getting played for quite some time and I don't think crude oil or anything quite frankly is something you want to negotiate with vis-a-vis uh, -vis Twitter or in in an open forum. I mean, $40 ago we wanted lower prices and we got them and now all of a sudden we want higher prices and we're not getting them. You know, you have to wonder what's on the other side of these negotiations in public. I'll say this again. I absolutely think the Saudis and the Russians are stepping on our necks and they want to see our oil industry fail. And I think that's what the end goal is. And I'm steadfast in my belief that they will lose the battle to win the war. And right now, they might be losing the battle, but it sure looks like they're winning this war. So let's see how it plays itself out. That's it right there. That's it. They, they can take the hits short term, so that way they just own one of the most valuable markets for forever, essentially, for our lifetimes, or as those kinds, kinds, of, kinds of things tend to be, the life cycles of those kinds of things, which is to say, not forever, but for a significantly long time. <laughs> uh, Wow. And would a more politically savvy president have seen this coming? 
can you put it all on one guy? Wouldn't it be an entire administration? Was it situational? I mean, how much influence does Trump have between Saudi and Ara- Saudi Arabia and Russia getting together and coming up with a plan? Probably not much. It's really down to the intelligence agencies and the administration to catch it and try to do what they can. But what can they do if they're just going to turn the pumps up? There's not a lot other than them tariffs, right? So let's wrap up with something that you know is coming. I saw an, an, a Medium article that called it the greatest gaslight of American history is about to happen. And that is advertisers are going to come at you with everything they've got to try to get you to feel like life is normal again. So you will spend, spend, spend because Americans have been trained to spend their way out of every situation. So this is a montage you may have heard. It's been put together on YouTube. It's already got like a million views, but this is a super cut of every Corona COVID commercial. that's telling you to come right back to life. Every one of them starts with this somber piano music. This is Ubers. Here's Grubhubs. This is Publix. Fairway Stores. Remax. Samsung. Apple. Kia. Budweiser. FedEx. Hudson's Bay. Lincoln. Heineken. Facebook. Penske. When we first opened Lexus. our doors. Since 1926. Since 1978. For 60 years. For 75 years. For over 80 years. In 90 years. Over 100 years. Nationwide has been on your side. Restaurants have always been there for you. Nissan has been with you through thick and thin. We will do what we've always done. Take care of people. We're people. 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 Family. 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 Families. 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 Even now. Especially now. Especially now. Right now. Now more than ever. More than ever. Today more than ever. Today more than ever. In times like this. At times like these. During these difficult times. In these troubled times. Challenging times. Trying times. In these times of uncertainty. During this time of great uncertainty. During these uncertain times. During these uncertain times. In uncertain times. In uncertain times. Uncertain times. Unprecedented times. Unprecedented times. Unprecedented times. This unprecedented moment in our history. It's time of social distancing. Well, <laughs> you're getting it, right? They're going to come at you with everything they've got. Their best skills. Everything with these ads. Brace yourselves. For the great public spending push. Get out there, consumers. Save the economy. Spend, spend, spend. Things have slowed down. As we turn more inside. While the doors may be closed. While the distance between us has gotten bigger. The more we stay apart. We still find ways to stay close. Even when we're apart. Yes, those are all different commercials cut together. It's going to come at you full force. So I, I don't know. I don't know what the rest of this week looks like just because I don't quite know what my health situation looks like. So the best place to sort of stay in the loop on what's going on would be our community unfilter.show slash discord. That's where you go. That's where you go to join in there. Also unfilter.show slash contact. I think that's now wired into the new Proton mailbox if you want to send in some email to the old showski. Discord I check a little more often. 
Also, if you're curious on what I'm doing these days, my future projects, I'm going to give a plug for my website, chrislast.com. Could be a lot going on there soon, so I want you to check that out, have that bookmarked, in case you want to know. You know, boom, hit that sucker. Oh, yeah, that's what Chris is up to. I see chrislast.com. That's good to know. Links, a lot of additional context, some of the informed commentary is all supplied in our show notes. If you want to grab that on the web, it's unfilter.show slash 304. Who I get talking fast like this and the old lungs start to really hurt. Gotta go slow. Slow unfilter. Slow burn. Thanks so much, though. I really appreciate you tuning into these episodes. Now, I could use a little help. Maybe spread the word to somebody that you think would find some benefit from the Unfiltered Show. I hear from a lot of people that it kind of helps them keep things a little in perspective. Stay a little sane. Understand what's going on with all this corona stuff. So if you know somebody that might benefit in a way like that, send them a link to the show. Help spread the word. It's the number one way you can help me with this program. Is spread it to somebody who'd like it. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you soon. Hold up.